This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Benton, Caleb, Susanna, Amy, and Caleb. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Today is the 4th of July, Independence Day. The Declaration of Independence, adopted by the Continental Congress in 1776, may not be a sacred document, but it does declare a great sacred truth that we are all created equal by God, and that our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness come from Him and no one else. As you celebrate the 4th of July, one way to do it is to remind yourself that we are all God's creatures and that we can serve Him by loving one another. Now, for our serious questions this week. We have one about lying and one about, well, horseshoes. Let's start with lying. Benton asks, why is Peter always lying about not being a disciple? Isn't he supposed to tell the world about God? Well, Benton, I'm not sure if it's fair to say that Peter was always lying, but when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus, he definitely lied about being a disciple. When people asked him whether he was a follower of Jesus, Peter flat out denied it. He even said that he didn't know Jesus. In our last episode, we talked about the Great Commission in Matthew 26, where Jesus tells us to go out and make disciples. Christians are definitely supposed to tell the world about Jesus. So why didn't Peter do that? The fact is, before the crucifixion, Peter was overconfident. He thought he was the boldest of the disciples. In fact, he even tried to correct Jesus at one point. But all that confidence was an illusion. Peter was relying on himself, on his own power, and not on God. And when he was tested, he didn't pass with flying colors. He failed. And that failure humbled him. It taught Peter something that we all need to learn, that as long as we rely on our own strength, we will always fold under pressure. To be faithful, we need to put our trust in Jesus and rely on the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what happened to Peter on the day of Pentecost. There, filled with the Spirit, Peter preached boldly to the crowds, and thousands believed in Jesus. Now, it's hard for us to believe that the same man who denied Jesus when he was arrested later proclaimed him in public before the world. But that's a testament to how the Spirit transformed Peter. And he can transform us as well. Now we have a follow-up from Caleb about a question I answered last week. I explained the significance of the letters on the altarpiece in the sanctuary, but it seems I left some things out. Here's the question. Why is there a horseshoe and a four-leaf clover on the wooden thing behind the pulpit? Well, last time I explained the meaning of the letters on the altarpiece, which is the wooden thing behind the pulpit. 
In fact, I already answered part of this question, Caleb, but I can understand why you don't realize it. Remember when I talked about the Greek letters Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet? Well, Alpha looks like an English A, but Omega, despite what it sounds like, doesn't look like an English O. Guess what it does look like? It looks like a horseshoe. So the thing that looks like a horseshoe on the altarpiece is actually the Greek letter omega. And if you don't remember what alpha and omega symbolize, then listen to episode 23 one more time. Now, the symbols that look like four-leaf clovers on the altarpiece are called quatrefoils, which is derived from the Latin for four leaves, so no surprise there. A quatrefoil is a common symbol in church architecture. You'll see a lot of them in medieval cathedrals, in stained glass windows, and in altarpieces like the one in our sanctuary. The reason for the popularity of this symbol is that it resembles a stylized cross. If you look at the four leaves of the quatrefoil and you kind of uh, let your eyes go blurry a little bit, you can almost imagine that it's in the shape of a cross. Now, some people also think that the four leaves of the quatrefoil are reminders of the four gospel evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's also another version of this symbol called a trefoil, and that one only has three leaves. That's often seen as a symbol of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, these are decorative elements that have become really common in architecture. So once you've noticed them, if you start looking, don't be surprised if you see them in a lot of different places. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this episode is asked by Susanna, and it's all about parenting. Susanna asks... If God were to bless you with children, how would you teach them to love God? How would you thank God? Well, Susanna, never say never, but I'm old enough now to feel relatively confident that God is not going to bless me with children of my own. I'm not as old as Abraham yet, but God also hasn't made a personal promise to me about having a son, for example. Since I don't have first-hand experience of parenting, You might think that I'm reluctant to give advice about parenting, but actually I'm happy to do it. And if you remember the baptism during our church service two weeks ago, I know the perfect place to start in answering this question. When we baptize newborn covenant children, the parents of the child take vows before the congregation. And if you pay attention to what's in those vows, then you will find the perfect answer to this question. So, how should we thank God for the blessing of children? The vows say that we thank God by dedicating the child to God. Think of it this way. Whenever God gives us something wonderful, the way to express gratitude is to give it back to Him. For example, we give tithes and offerings to say thank you, for the support that God has given us. Now, in the same way, if we're grateful for our children, we acknowledge that they come from God and that they belong to Him. 
our children are ours because they've been entrusted to us, but they, they don't belong to us the way that possessions belong to us. Instead, parents are like stewards. They've been entrusted with children by God in order to raise them and nurture them, and they're called to do it as unto the Lord. So the question is, how should we teach children to love God? Well, again, the vows give us an answer. They say that there are several ways that we should do this. So one of those ways is to set a godly example before them. If you want your children to love God, then you should love God yourself. They will learn valuable lessons from your own example. By imitating the way you live, they will learn to live as people who love God. So set a godly example before them. That's one thing. Another thing is to pray with them and for them. So talk to God with your children, and they will learn how to pray. When you're concerned for your children, pray for them. This might actually be the most important thing that you can do to encourage children to love God, to not only set the example, but specifically the example of prayer, communicating with God, and then bringing your children into that. So when your parents pray for you and pray with you, what they're doing is showing you how to talk with God. Now, there's another thing the vows mention, which is this, teaching them good doctrine. So not only do we want to have good examples and pray with children, but we also want to instruct children about Jesus, about the Bible and all of its teaching, so that they can understand the goodness of God. If you understand God's goodness, then it's easy to love him. So teaching them good doctrine means teaching them about their own sin, about how they need the cleansing blood of Jesus, and how they need the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. This is the reason why we teach young people these doctrines so that they can understand who they are and who God is and who God is to them, and they can love him. Now, there's a fancy phrase in the vows that sums all of this up, and here's the phrase, bring up your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's what parents commit to do when they take these baptismal vows, and the congregation commits to help them in doing this. And that leads me actually to my final point, which is you can't bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord outside the church. Now, that means if you're going to take this responsibility seriously, then your family must be involved in the life of the church. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Christian religion is not a philosophy you agree with. It's a faith you put into practice. So the way to raise children in the faith is to practice it yourself. They learn to worship by worshiping with you in church. They learn to pray by praying with you. They learn to read scripture by reading it with you. Now... It'll be a long time before you need to worry about how to raise your own children, but you can start putting your faith in Jesus into practice right now so that when the time comes, you're ready. And before we finish today, we have some fun questions from Amy and Caleb. 
First, Amy asks, will we do church all year? Now, this is an interesting question, especially if Amy is asking whether we could have a church service that lasts a whole year. I love that idea. Just imagine coming to church on New Year's Eve and not getting out until New Year's Eve 12 months later. Imagine how long a sermon I could preach in that service. People think 30 minutes feels long. Just imagine an eight-month-long sermon. Well, I think Amy's actually asking something else. I think she's asking, will we have church every Sunday, or do we sometimes have breaks like we do from Sunday school, for example, over the summer? Well, the simple answer is, Lord willing, we always gather to worship on the Lord's Day. Jesus established this pattern in the very first Sunday worship service, the Resurrection Day encounter with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24. And every Sunday since then, Christians have gathered to worship him. Now, sometimes the circumstances interfere. Here in South Dakota, for example, we have sometimes had to cancel services because of blizzards. Uh, But as a rule, we never take a Sunday off because that's the Lord's day, and he's told us to honor it. And now Caleb asks, what's the closest you've ever come to death? Wow. Uh, Caleb, I suspect I've come close to death many times without realizing it. Sometimes I'll say things or do things, and then I look at Lori, and she gives me this look that says, watch it, buddy, you're close. And to be honest with you, I've also done plenty of not very smart things that could have resulted in serious bodily injury. Growing up is about growing in wisdom and avoiding that kind of thing. And I'd like to think that over the years, I do a lot less of those dangerous things than I once did. In honor of the 4th of July, I'm tempted to talk about close calls that I've had with fireworks in my neighborhood as a kid growing up. Uh, The kids on one side of the street would fight wars with the kids who lived on the other side of the street by shooting bottle rockets back and forth. Trust me, uh, this is not a good idea. But like a lot of people, the closest I've probably ever come to death was in a car accident. I've actually had a couple of accidents that were pretty serious, but there's one in particular that, that I emerged from unscathed, but it was very frightening, and it could have gone very differently. I was on a crowded highway driving into the city, and right in front of me, there was a big semi-truck parked on the shoulder with a flatbed trailer sticking out into the lane. Now, I moved over just in time and passed by, but the car next in line hit the trailer, and it started spinning across multiple lanes. I saw the whole thing in my rearview mirror. All the traffic behind me started colliding one car into another. It was a major pileup. Usually the drive on this stretch of highway was bumper to bumper, but that day, because of the accident, I was the only car left driving all alone down the highway. Everyone behind me was caught in the pileup. As I drove alone down that usually crowded way, my hands on the steering wheel were shaking. That was really close, I thought, and and everything had been just normal the moment before. So it happened so quickly, so suddenly. It wasn't the kind of thing you could really prepare for. 
Now, the lesson is, before you come close to death, you want to settle in your heart whether you have anything to fear when it comes to death. That's why it's so important to know Jesus and to put your trust for salvation in him, because it's knowing Jesus that takes the sting out of death, as the Apostle Paul says, because the dead in Christ will be raised again. So before you have a brush with death, you want to think about the significance of life after death and faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.